My name is Dave Irving. I work here at church part-time and look after the City Care Ministries. And it's my privilege to open up God's Word with you this evening. Um, we've been going through this, this year the, the, top, the theme of hope. Um, you cast your mind back to some of the sermons and topics we've addressed. We had a long series on the, the topic of the resurrection. Um, and we've been working through mainly this year through the, the book of Hebrews. Um, and the, the last section of that Hebrews, uh, the, 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 of our series on Hebrews, has been focused on that image, which you might have seen at the start on the screen above me, um, that image of an anchor for the soul, um, which we get uh, actually earlier in Hebrews, that image in Hebrews 6, where Jesus is the anchor, our anchor for the soul, which is such a beautiful image of hope for us. Um, tonight we um, continue uh, and, and see uh, that there's this image of Jesus entering into the temple, this image of Jesus as the great high priest. We come to the next chapter of that. Last week we saw um, his involvement with the new covenant. This week we see that that new covenant issues in a new form of worship. So our topic tonight is the topic of worship in relation to what Jesus has done. And it's um, language you can see there in verse 1 of chapter 9, and I invite you to keep your Bibles open, and, th and throughout the passage, actually. Um, and as Bromwell mentioned before, we're taken into the badlands of <clears throat> the, the, the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, the graveyard of many people's Bible-reading plans, as you started at the start of this year. Um, so hard, the, it's such hard work, such a cultural gap that we have between our modern sensibilities and this ancient world full of sacrifices, blood. Um, it's very different, and it requires a lot of work from us. But if you recall back earlier in our series on Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, we're reminded that the Word of God is living and active. So as hard work as it is, this is God's Word for us, which is it's like a sword that pierces our hearts. And as we read through Leviticus, we, we keep hearing that the Holy Spirit speaks the Scriptures to us. So what I want to do now is pray that God would speak these ancient words, not just the ancient words of Hebrews, but the more ancient words of Leviticus um, into our hearts so that we might um, understand what he has to say to us today. In particular, that we would understand what's meant by verse 14, just before I pray, the key verse and the one that we'll concentrate on towards the end. Verse 14, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us tonight. Show us the glories of your son, Jesus, our great high priest, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, three points tonight. Um, we'll kick off just the story of worship. We'll start from the beginning. We'll see how this Levitical story uh, looks backwards to the story and continues the story of worship and the way that Jesus completes the story of worship. So we'll work through those points. And we'll start with the story of worship, which, you know, as a topic, is, it's, I'm not sure what you think about when, when you hear the word worship, what images spring to mind. Um, there'll be some of us who hear worship and straight away we're just like, yep, that's praising Jesus, that's what we do at church, that's what I do midweek as I listen to worship songs, I worship Jesus, I praise him, it's my, my heart's disposition towards God. Others of us will think, our minds will wander maybe to the temples that we see, maybe in our neighbourhood, maybe in some of the cities that we visited overseas, very ornate, full of quite mysterious and unknown um, 
things that go on. Some of us will know more about those than others, and maybe our minds go to, go to that place. There's also just this idea that we see around in our society um, of celebrity worship as we consider Australian Idol or just the numerous um, sports heroes that we worship and follow and listen to podcasts about um, sports heroes or, or entertainment or singers or other celebrities. This is a very different picture of worship that we have in Hebrews. It takes us back to an ancient culture and a world where um, the ancient Israelites were not alone in having a sacrificial system represent a cultic worship, a way of actually offering sacrifices to be in close proximity to your God. And the kinds of sacrifices that you would have probably say a little bit about that God. And so in some, in some of the ancient cultures, you had um, the, the requirement to offer child, child sacrifices. And there were temple, temple prostitutes and fertility cults um, offering an image of a God which is arbitrary and cruel. What we have in the book of Leviticus is something far more ordered. Um, but speaking to the similar idea of it's something that enables us to get close to the proximity of God. So as we look back in the story of worship in the Bible, it actually, there's a few steps to take to really understand the way that the Bible is distinctively taking us through that idea of worship, the idea that we might need, that we want to get close to the presence of God. So what I want to do is spend a bit of time telling you a story. I'm going to start a story. Like one, one of the joys, actually, of, of my, my life is to go back to visit some of my friends who have got kids who are just at that beautiful age where they, I don't know, they haven't quite hit teenage years and they haven't, they're, not, they're more than just a little potato. They've got such a beautiful personality. And my, my, my friends invite me to come around and actually read them a bedtime story. Um, so they've just had a wild run around the house naked after their bath and they come along with clothes on and we read a story of the Bible before they go uh, to bed. And so I, it's also awesome. I love sort of opening up this picture Bible, a visual picture that describes something of the story of the Bible. So what I want to do is start with the, the story of worship as we see it in the scriptures with three, three basic points. And I won't speak in that kind of condescending way that you, people often speak to children. Um, and that's partly because it's the children that actually make that more interesting than I do. But um, let me start with scene one, and I'll just see if this works for me. It does. I can control it. So here's the first picture of worship. And it's not a conventional way of thinking through worship, but if we're thinking through worship as the presence of God, this is where it all begins. God made, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where the Bible begins, and that's where the story of worship begins. We have this, a couple of different creation accounts, but in the second one, we see this beautiful image of humanity placed in the middle of the paradise garden of Eden. Um, they're, they're naked. Um, they're naked and unashamed of it. They're naked and able to be vulnerable with each other. They're, they're, and, and they're not sort of doubting each other, but there's a deep trust between each other and there's a deep trust with God. God's not pictured in this picture Mostly, I think, because it's just very hard to picture God. Um, but their, their, their walk with God is, is naked and unashamed and uninhibited towards him. They walk with God in the garden. And their lives are, are given dignity by, by work, with work to do as they serve the creatures around them. They're given authority by God to rule the creation around them. And their, their lives are 
uninhibited by some of the problems, frankly, that we experience sometimes, the interpersonal issues that we have, the questions, like they, when they say something, they don't hold back in saying it because they know that the other person will receive it. There's a, there's a beauty and, a, and, a, and, and, an, and an ideal that we long for in our relationship with God and relationship with each other, representing what I think is perfect worship. Um, moving on in the story, the second image we've got is the breakdown of that relationship. So there was this excellent, um, this excellent relationship they had with God and with each other, and the distrust that was caused by sin caused their relationships to break down and caused them to be forced out of the garden by two handsome gentlemen with lightsabers and using the force, presumably, according to this image. Um, but no, two, two uh, cherubim angels who guard the Garden of Eden and block the presence because the presence of God can't deal with that kind of breakdown of relationship. The worship of God was not compatible with sin. And so Adam and Eve were forced out of the gardens. They're, they're ashamed. Suddenly their vulnerability disappears. They're ashamed of their nakedness. And barriers are put up between them and God and between them and one another. So you can see them clothed in this picture, hiding from God. The third part of the, the story is it's, it's another obstacle in the presence of God. And that is, while the people are unclean and pulled out, God is also a holy God. And there's this moment um, later in the story where Moses approaches God in a manifestation of God in a burning bush at the start of the book of Exodus. And he appears and calls out to Moses, says, Moses, come, clo come closer. And he says, stop, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. And you can see Moses there with his, kneel he's kneeling down, he's taken his sandals off and he's shielding his eyes because he cannot look. He has to veil his eyes from the holy God. And there's a recognition that the holiness of God is like a fire that you can't get too close to it without risking yourself getting burnt or worse of dying. Um, we saw something of this with the start of the Leviticus passage at Bromwood before, where Aaron's sons had died because, of, because they were messing with the presence of God. And that takes us to the fourth and final image of my story, which takes us up to the, the, the start of the passage, and that is that God, when he, when he set, establishes a covenant with the people of Israel, as he saves them out of Egypt and sets up a covenant with them, some of the regulations, and especially in the book of Leviticus, are to set up a way that God can live with his people. So we have this, in the background you can see a special place, which is the tabernacle. We see a special person who administers all of the, 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 the sacrifices, and that's the high priest. And you can see Aaron there um, wearing a nice headdress. And then there's a very pious-looking goat um, who is receiving the sins of Israel as Aaron, the high priest, confesses the sin on the scapegoat and he's going to cast it into the desert. And really at the heart of this sacrificial system is a special place, a special person with special procedures. And we've heard about that previously. Um, Aaron really here represents the high priest who undertakes many of the key sacrifices for um, the nation of Israel. That's the story of Israel. That's the story of worship, the Bible story of worship that takes us up to the passage that we've got now. And the passage in front of us, and I invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews 9 if you haven't got them there already, takes this story and looks back to it, but then also looks forward from this story. See uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship. 
there's our worship language, and also an earthly sanctuary. Um, I've got a couple of uh, pictures here, courtesy of Rob Forsyth, which may not be working now. Hold on. There we go. Um, here is a picture of the tabernacle right in the midst of the people. This is where God dwelt with his people. Um, there's a courtyard there, you can see, and then there's an altar and a, and, a, and, a, and a basin filled with water for washing. I might need you, Emma, to press the next slide. Um, a closer look um, is this one here. You can see the courtyard again, and up close a bit more, the, the, the altar, which is used for the burnt offerings. Um, so we often think that sacrifices were done on an altar. Actually, in the book of Leviticus, they're not. Um, they're, they're sort of killed outside, and then the blood is brought inside, and then the pieces of the sacrifice were then burnt on the altar, depending on the sacrifice. Um, we'll get to that in just a moment. Maybe one more slide in. Thanks, Emma. Here's where we get up close and we see the, tab the tabernacle itself, um, and we see all the different golden um, items, very ornate, very elaborate description. And we see uh, the author of the Hebrews take us through that. Looking at verse 2, he says, A tabernacle was set up. In its first room was a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. And fair enough, look at that. You can see that it's there. There's a lampstand, that classic um, menorah, the, Jew the symbol of Jewish worship, to one side. On the other side, there's a table with consecrated bread on it. The menorah is it's interesting. If you go back to the book of Exodus and read the description of it, it's very ornate. And not only is it ornate, it's... it's um, it's like a tree. If you go back and read the, the picture of it, he says, take, uh, take this, this lamp, hammer it out of pure gold and craft these little almond leaves and flower buds all the way through it so that it really resembles a tree. And as we go through the, the tabernacle, we see there's a few items like this that remind us that this is the presence of God because it's kind of like Eden. It's got all this Eden-like imagery. The temple is pining back to this time where relationship with God was simpler and purer. That's the first room, the holy place, reserved for the priest's work. The next room is the most holy place, so verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark contained, and you can't see this in the picture because it's inside the Ark at the moment, but the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and above the ark, Emma, if you go to the next slide, this is the close-up picture of the ark. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. And then he says, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. It's really frustrating because I love the detail of this now. There's so much symbolism. Even on top of the, the atonement cover there, you've got these two uh, cherubim, which is just like the Garden of Eden again. Drawing back that image there, sitting on top of the atonement cover, the atonement cover, which is also often referred to as the mercy seat, because when the smoke arose from the fragrant offering, it would, it would sit above and, be, and, and sit above the atonement cover and, was, and represented the presence of God in the most holy place. But as the author says, we cannot discuss these things now, which to some of us is actually a great relief. It's like, let's just move on. But some of us, like me, it's like, I wish we had a bit more time to think about that. Anyway, suffice to say... The picture of the tabernacle shows us that the closer you get to God, the more holy the room needs to be. The tabernacle is ornate and costly, 
with rooms representing increasing proximity to God. In verse 6, we see once everything is set up properly, then the priests get to work. And so we've seen the place, we then see the procedures. Verse 6, take a look. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on the ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed, the, the, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. This is going back to Leviticus 16 and the passage that Bronwyn read before, uh, the day of atonement, or Yom Kippur, the annual day where God would atone, uh, the, the high priest would atone for the sins of Israel and God would forgive the sins of the nations. It is often, I think, sometimes I've, I've thought about the Day of Atonement, like there's a, there's, there's a day where they just take an animal and they kill it and the sins are forgiven and it's kind of simple like that, but it is way more complicated than that. Um, if you follow the details of that passage that were read out, um, Aaron has to take a young bull and sacrifice, oh, sorry, he has to wash himself, put on the proper clothes, kill a bull, go in and sprinkle the altar for himself then he goes and does the same thing for the holy place. Then he takes a goat and he spares one of the goats and confesses the sin of Israel and, shoots and sends it into the wilderness. And he takes the other goat and he sacrifices that and then he takes it into the altar and then he takes it outside and sprinkles it on the people. It is a solid day's work. It is a, it's a day of atonement. Um, it is not just a single sacrifice. There's a lot of work to do. But again, our author just wants us to focus on a couple of details. And it's these two things. The first thing is the sprinkling of the blood. That's really where it's at in the Day of Atonement. It's, the sacrifice happens, and of course, that's very important, but it's him going in sprinkling the blood that actually makes atonement. The second thing uh, that he does is the word only. And I'll just, just highlight that um, in verse 7. Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. He speaks of it like with a... Like, he speaks down on it, honestly. He says it's only this. It's really only... It's, 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 it's limited in what it's able to do. Listen to how he concludes his description of this place and this procedure in verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been actually disclosed properly as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. It's an illustration of the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. See, it's, it's elaborate and costly and it's good, but its impact is external. It's not able to go into the inside of the worshipper. It's not able to clean the conscience. What the author of the Hebrews is saying is like a children's illustration book. It points back to the story of worship, but it also then points forward to say, look, it does something, but it, there's something more that needs to happen in worship for people to be properly in the presence of God. It's not like this illustration, this sacrificial system was useless. It had its purpose, but it was symbolic. Symbolic rituals removed defilement symbolically, and it was enough for God to symbolically dwell with his people. True access to God wasn't available yet, like they pined for in the Garden of Eden. These sacrifices could make someone clean on the outside, but they couldn't clean your conscience. 
The Holy Spirit says the tabernacle was a story pointing forward to a new order, and Jesus brings that order. And so we come to the end of the story of worship. Jesus, it turns out, fills those three categories of the tabernacle. So what did we say they were before? It's a place, it's a person, it's a procedure. Jesus ticks all the boxes. Jesus is the person, he's the high priest, we've been hearing about that for weeks. Um, He's made like us anyway, he can sympathise with our needs, he's died, he's risen, he intercedes for us. What we see here is that he also enters the better place, verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of this creation. When he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, Jesus went into the very presence of God, not just a tent symbolically representing the holy place. He went into what is described as the heavenly tabernacle or what back in chapter 8 was called the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Structures in heaven that God had, the, the pattern that Moses followed when he copied the tabernacle presumably was of this heavenly tabernacle. It's the place representing the ongoing presence of God, not just the place where God appeared once a year. It's much better. And there's, so Jesus was the better, Jesus went into the better place, he was the better person, and he offers the better procedure. When he enters the perfect tabernacle, he offers the better sacrifice, verse 12. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. And with what result? Thus obtaining eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. No longer symbolic cleanliness once a year. Ongoing, eternal, substantial redemption. What we instinctively do sometimes is, I think, search for a moment where we say, how is this talking about Jesus' death? Um, because we often are thinking through, that's what, that's, what, that's what the atoning work of God is. It's Jesus' death. And it's quite clear here that there's an eternal redemption that's won by Jesus' death. That's true. But the, the book of Hebrews, as we've been finding out, is, encompasses much more than Jesus' death in his atoning work. It seems to be his risen and ascended work. Much like you see the risen and ascended work in the book of Acts work, you could call, instead of calling it the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you could call it the book of the risen Jesus because of his work. Here we see the work of the risen Jesus is to uh, continue uh, to offer up um, his high priestly work. What we see then in conclusion is some really important words and I want us to dwell on these a little bit. Listen to this final contrast in verses 13 and 14. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. In contrast, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much with the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? How much more will the blood of Christ offered by the high priest and the holy of holies in heaven, the blood of his own unblemished sacrifice, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God? 
What do we make of this? Let me just spend some time considering this with you. The big thing that this means, I think, is that Jesus has finished the story of worship. All of the worship requirements that you need to be made pure, all of the worship requirements you need to enter the presence of God have been fulfilled in Jesus. He's actually done the work. There's no more sacrifices needed for you to do that. The presence of God is yours. Uh, there's an illustration that Tim Keller's used that I really love. Um, he just pictures these two ancient people, one of them a Christian, one of them pagan, and they have to strike up a conversation. The pagan person turns to his Christian friend and says, oh, I hear that you're religious. Tell me, where are your temples? And the Christian person says, oh, we don't have a temple, actually. Uh, Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their work and their rituals? He says, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian, because Jesus is our priest. No priests. But then where do you offer sacrifices to acquire the favour of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian, because Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is that? <laughs> the pagan person says with exasperation. Don't understand, this is a category failure. And the Christian responds, well, the answer is it's not really a religion at all. Now, of course, if you're going to fill in the census and you ask what is your religion, you'll put down it's Christian. You know, or the variety, you might say you're Anglican or whatever it is you'll say. But there's something different about Christianity because of what Jesus has done. It's, it's, it's worship uh, accomplished. The job's actually done. And it changes everything, actually. It doesn't mean that we don't worship. Of course we do. We, we, we stand here and worship. In fact, Paul will say, and I'll say this in a moment, Paul says, live out your lives as a living sacrifice. We do offer up our, our lives as sacrifice. But like Roger said in, our, in his sermon last week, there's a different type of approach to God, the blessing of God. It's, it's a U-shape rather than an N-shape. Um, it's, it's out of gratitude for what God has done for us rather than something that we try to do to accomplish God's favour. We don't work to get into God's presence. It's actually already ours, and we live out God's presence in our lives. So what it means is we need to put aside any notions of ongoing sacrifice to earn God's favour or to earn his presence. We need to put aside notions of trading off our good behaviours for God's favour, punishing ourselves with wrongdoings for wrongdoings, or excluding ourselves from certain activities at church, or doing God favours in order to make up for the, some of the things that we've done wrong, by like turning up to church. If you're atoning for your own sins, you need to stop it, because someone else has already done the job for you. That's someone else's job, and Jesus is the one who's actually worshipped on your behalf. So that you have uninhabited inhibited access to the Father, and it's, it's not visible in the same way that the Old Covenant was. It's, you, don't, you don't see and smell and hear the sacrifices like you used to. And it's also not visible in the way that it one day will be when we see Jesus face to face. But it's real. We have Jesus' promise to us that he'll be with us um, always until the end of the age. And we have the promise that God's spirit lives in us. God's presence is with us 
Paul will say that we are temples of the Holy Spirit as we walk around from day to day. Sacrifice has changed, therefore. We're not earning the presence of God, we've got it. And Paul will say, and I think these words are fantastic, it's in view of God's mercy. In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, as our true and proper worship, not conforming to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's the nature of true worship. Jesus has done it. And then in response, we offer up our lives as a sacrifice. But then there's also another word to be said, and that is about the language of consciences, which is clearly the emphasis of the passage. The old covenant thing could not deal with um, sacrifices. The new covenant can. Jesus can. What do we do with this language of conscience? I think that it's difficult because conscious I'll, I'll come to... Conscious is a difficult concept to deal with. Um, we, 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 like having, it's, not, it's not like when Jesus cleans our consciences that we'll never feel guilty again. We'll sin, and of course we'll feel guilty for that. And what we've got in mind here, and I think, I think um, what Jesus does for us is he paints a picture that the worship is, is dealt with um, so, that, so that we can actually con- continue the kind of fellowship that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. A, dread, a, a, a sense that which we can actually cast away the things that inhibit our relationship to God, that we can actually be vulnerable with him and open up our hearts with him, that we can actually open up and be vulnerable with each other, that we can go back to that presence of God and that reality of life that God that created in the Garden and will one day restore us to. What this encourages us to do, I think, is to approach him, to go to him in prayer, to go to him in, in the knowledge that you enjoy his closeness already and his pleasure, and to not draw back from approaching him. Whatever inner feelings of inadequacy or failure that we feel in God's presence, Jesus is able to cleanse us from these, to serve him. Yes, they are works that lead to death, but Jesus has redeemed us by his once-for-all sacrifice so that we can serve him. Some of us here have some significant matters of guilt and shame um, that we wrestle with. And this is a true word for you tonight, I think, that is like a balm for the soul. I love the fact that the, Hebrews, that the author of the Hebrews pinpoints the conscience here in Jesus' atoning work. So this is a word for you if you've got a guilt-ridden soul. There are complexities in unpacking the conscience that I don't fully understand and we won't go into, but it's clear that, and it's, yeah, but what Jesus does is clean our consciences again and again with a guarantee that his presence is not at risk so that we might have the kind of open, vulnerable fellowship with God that we saw in the garden. Now, you might say to yourself, but I don't, I'm not one of those people who's guilt-ridden. I don't really struggle with an issue of conscience. And I want to say, well, maybe that's true. Um, but then I think that there are overt matters of conscience and some more covert, hidden matters. Um, all of us have a conscience, 
And so whether you call it conscience or maybe your personality or a complex or some mental health, mental health issues, let me ask you a couple of questions, which are genuine questions and not designed to condemn you or pigeonhole you, questions for you to consider um, and to contemplate the more ma hidden matters of your conscience. If, that is, if, you, if I don't have an issue of conscience, why is it that I don't experience the freedom of being vulnerable with God? If I don't have a matter of conscience, why is it, why is it that I don't have that same ability to be vulnerable with others? Why do I hide in the garden? And why am I so slow to come to God in repentance when I've sinned? Or maybe more subtly even, why am I trapped in a pattern of work where I'm always working too much and despite saying that I'll always cut back, I'm not able to? Or why am I trapped in a fear of missing out, unable to say no to any people's invitations? Why am I reserved in sharing my real self with the people around me? Why do I draw back from serving at church? Why do I exhaust myself in serving at church? Why can't we confront people for fear of conflict? Why do I always engage in conflict? Friends, our word tonight encourages us to come to Jesus, who cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death. Take comfort brothers and sisters, that God in Jesus has not thought it too costly to shed the blood of his son and sprinkle you clean so that you can enjoy his presence forever. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you for your relentless desire to dwell with unclean people and sinful people like us. Please sprinkle us clean, cleanse our consciences, and give us the joy and freedom of fellowship with you so that we worship you with the gratitude of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.